Hello and welcome to Theotology, where we put the art back in theology by finding God in the movies. Today we're going to explore romantic comedies. Romantic comedies used to be very popular in the 90s and the 2000s when we had Julia Roberts, Meg Ryan, Tom Hanks, Hugh Grant, Sandra Bullock, all of them these bona fide romantic comedy movie stars. One of my favorites is My Best Friend's Wedding. It is really actually a terrible film with a person who does terrible things, but yet you want them to succeed. It's a movie that's sort of rested on the star power of its star, Julia Roberts. And even though she does horrendous things to sort of break off the engagement of her best friend, you kind of still root for her. Watching that recently, there were some moments when I would cringe going, this movie could never get made today. We're just far too cynical. We're far too quote unquote progressive. And I think um, maybe also a little more wise um, you know, on the positive side. But even so, one of my favorite scenes in that movie, and I think one that we can all relate to, which is sort of, you know, one of the universal themes of all romantic comedies is the scene where Julia Roberts and Dermot Mulroney are on the boat, on the ferry, and she wants to confess her love to him. She says, if you love someone, you say it. You say it right then, out loud. Otherwise, the moment just passes you by. And then they go on a bridge and the shadow of the bridge covers them and they come out on the other side and the moment has passed. She can no longer tell him that she loves him. And I think for me, that was always such a sad and beautiful, poignant moment because, because I've been in that place. And I think this is true for all of us in some way. I think we've all grown up uh, with hurts in our relationships and with unrequited love and with seeing people that we love, love someone else or marry someone else. And so that was a beautiful scene. And what I liked about the movie especially is that Julia Roberts doesn't get the guy in the end. She ends up not winning, you could say. They actually had a different ending plan for that film and I'm glad that they changed it because I think it made it more real. In the original ending of My Best Friend's Wedding, Julia Roberts' character actually finds love at the wedding scene in the end. She meets some guy and he becomes Mr. Right, realizing that she's let the love of her life go, but that's okay. You know, and I go back to my original opening thought of why romantic comedies aren't really made anymore. This author called Billy Murnett, who wrote the book called Writing the Romantic Comedy, and he says, uh, and he says, Less people are getting married, or getting married young now than they were years ago. And the whole dating culture with the apps and online, there's a subtle sea change in what that audience is looking at in terms of romantic comedy entertainment. So you have the studio still making the same formulaic romantic comedy where it's a courtship story that leads to marriage and it usually revolves around a young professional woman who gets a leg up by getting involved with an alpha male. The target audience, the 20-somethings and above, just no longer related to that kind of a movie, and yet the studios seem to be tone-deaf to that change. My opinion is that as we sort of progressed, we grew cynical. You know, we came to find out that life isn't like these romantic comedies. We, I think we always knew that, but I think being fed it so many times, we probably at some 
point allowed ourselves to believe that it might be possible that we could be living in a romantic fairy tale that we could be Meg Ryan we could be Tom Hanks we could be Hugh Grant we could be Julia Roberts you know and we came to find out that that's not really how life goes for most of us and I think that not only in the secular world and you know in the movies that Hollywood portrayed part of that problem also came from how we sort of talked about marriage in the Christian world as well I think sometimes we idolize marriage. I'm not saying all the time, but I think there has been instances in the past of the Christian church idolizing marriage. And I think we still, by and large today, assume that people are going to get married. You just always ask, oh, have you met someone? Have you found someone? Just get married and all your problems will get fixed. And of course, marriage is a wonderful thing to aspire to, to hope for to believe in, to fight for, and to commit to. But I think it's also important to remember that not everyone has to get married. There's still a unique blessing to be found in our singleness. And I think that's ironically what my best friend's wedding all those years ago was kind of pointing to and why I liked the ending so much. You know, she ends up quote unquote alone. You know, she dances with her friend instead of getting the guy. And it got me thinking this whole sort of how we approach marriage and how we approach singleness. There's so much there that I think we do right and so much I think that we don't get as right. When I was engaged to Aletha, we were we did a pre-marriage class and we were um, really trying to prepare ourselves for what lay ahead of us in marriage. And we were fortunate to have a lot of older couples in our life who shared a lot of wisdom and a lot of frank wisdom about you know, what marriage is really going to be like. So we really went in with our eyes wide open. We weren't, um, we weren't fooling ourselves and just thinking this was going to be some kind of dream, even though it really was. Um, when you do find the right person, the work becomes easy in a way, still with its challenges. And one of the books we read, and to date my favorite book on marriage, was called The Meaning of Marriage by Timothy Keller. If you haven't read it yet and you're married or about to get married or thinking about getting married or just want to know more about what marriage really is from a Christian perspective, I highly encourage this book. And one of the biggest takeaways I got that I will never forget is that the book puts forward the idea that marriage is not about making you happy, it's about making you holy. And I think when we sort of accept this and adopt this mentality, it really helps in our marriages moving forward. He says this in the book, he says that both men and women today see marriage not as a way of creating character and community, but as a way to reach personal life goals. They're looking for a marriage partner who will fulfill their emotional, sexual, and spiritual desires. And that creates an extreme idealism that in turn leads to a deep pessimism that you will ever find the right person to marry. There's another line in my best friend's wedding that Julia Roberts says, which she says, this is my one chance at happiness. I have to be ruthless. And I think that's true because we think our one chance at happiness lies in getting married, in finding a spouse. And so we will do anything to make that happen. And I think that's part of the unhealthy uh, pedestal that these movies put marriage on and that we in the Christian world have also sometimes adopted. Our happiness is not found in marriage. Marriage can be a source of happiness, of course, but if we're striving for marriage to solve all of our problems, to bring us our fulfillment and to bring us our happiness, we're going to be very 
disappointed. And so there's this there's this passage that Timothy Keller writes where he says this. He says, Within this Christian vision of marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of what God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you and it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificent, I will look at your magnificent, I can't say that word. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. And then he also says, in sharp contrast with our culture, the Bible teaches that the essence of marriage is a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other. That means that love is far more fundamentally action than emotion. But in talking this way, there is a danger of falling into the opposite error that characterized many ancient and traditional societies. It is possible to see marriage as merely a social transaction, a way of doing your duty to family, tribe, and society. Traditional societies made the family the ultimate value in life, and so marriage was a mere transaction that helped your family's interest. By contrast, contemporary Western societies make the individual's happiness the ultimate value, and so marriage becomes primary so and so marriage becomes primarily an experience of romantic fulfillment. But the Bible sees God as the supreme good, not the individual, not the individual or the family. And that gives us a view of marriage that intimately unites feelings and duty, passion and promise. That is because at the heart of the biblical idea of marriage is the covenant. When we commit to marriage in the eyes of God, and we submit that marriage to him as we should, it's about making us holy. It's about forming us into the character that God is wanting us to be, has made us to be, that is further refined by being committed to this person day in, day out. And you help them grow in their walk with Christ as they help you grow. And so together you embark on this journey of becoming more holy rather than making each other happy. And then you find that in this refining process, the happiness and the joy just flows out of that. So instead of seeking happiness, seek holiness in your marriage. And he, he sort of summarizes it in this nice, simple way. What marriage is for. It is a way for two spiritual friends to help each other on their journey to become the persons God designed them to be. So I think there's a lot of wisdom here in how we can approach marriage from a healthy perspective. And so now I turn my thoughts to singleness. You know, in this season of my life, I now find myself single again. I still have people asking me now, you know, will you get married again? You know, it, it's like we still live in this world where marriage is seen as the highest thing we can achieve relationally. You know, and I understand why, because it is. Having been married, having experienced that it is beautiful, you really do get to be shaped into the creation that God is making you into, you know, with the help of another chisel. And marriage is a beautiful picture of Jesus's relationship with the church. And so it's these, these beautiful things to esteem to. But I do feel that we can still be chiseled into that creation that God is wanting to us to be by being single. God can do his work in us 
with or without a spouse. You know, at the end of the day, it's really how willing we are to submit whatever season we are in and whatever relationships we have and don't have to him to do that work in us. You know, you can be married and not become more refined in the way God is wanting you to be. But you can be single and become more refined if you allow God to do that. And the same is true the other way around. I was reading this wonderful book called The Significance of Singleness by Christina S. Hitchcock. And she had some wonderful things to say to address this idea of singleness in the modern church. So she's talking a lot about um, sort of permanent singleness or lives committed to being single and celibate. And she says, at the heart of America's fear of celibacy, a fear that American evangelicals share with their secular counterparts is the belief that if we do not engage in sexual activity, we are not really grown-ups. In fact, we may not even be fully human. I think there's a lot of truth in this because, you know, I mean, let, let, let's look at the 40-year-old virgin, right? I mean, a whole movie built on the premise that it was funny for a man to be in his 40s and be a virgin, that he hadn't really experienced life because he hadn't had sex. It's so not true in the eyes of God. In the Christian kingdom, it's not true, you know. Sex does not equal life. It does not equal a more full life. Now, of course, it's a wonderful, beautiful thing within the boundaries of marriage, of course. We live in a very sex-obsessed society, and society at large tells us, go and have sex as soon as you're ready. Go and find your sexual fulfillment. Go and find your sexual identity. Go and explore, you know. There's so many avenues to try and find sexual fulfillment. Go and please yourself. Go and do what makes you happy. And I think when we go down that road, we find that it's not really fulfilling. It kind of leaves us empty. The online dating world is really fraught with tons of heartbreak and pain. It's not as glamorous as it seems. But there is this common fear that we have of being single, of being celibate, of not being able to have sex. And even taking the sex out of it, will we not be alone? Will we not feel lonely? if we're single for the rest of our lives. And I don't think it's necessarily true. Being alone does not always equate to being lonely. You can be lonely and still be married. You can be lonely and have a family. So I don't think we should be afraid of singleness. I think we should embrace it for what God can speak into it, can do with it. Now, singleness is talked about in the Bible and the Apostle Paul talks about it. And we often refer to sort of the practical significances of singleness. You know, you have more time, you can dedicate it to the church, you can be more available to others who need you. And so it's it's this wonderful season where you are able to give more self of give more of yourself to the cause of Christ. But we don't often talk about the theological significance of being single. And I think this is an important thing we need to talk about. The book The Significance of Singleness says this. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says something about singleness that goes far beyond the practical. What I mean by this is that this passage, in conjunction with others, indicates that singleness can, like marriage, provide a graphic picture of who God is, what God is doing, and what it means to be in relationship with God. And so there is this way to embrace singleness in the same way we can embrace marriage, in that it draws us closer to the Lord and reveals parts of himself that might not have otherwise been revealed. And it paints a picture of what the Christian kingdom is like. And she makes this profound statement that Christian celibacy directs our attention to the reality of the resurrection and the return of Christ and all that follows. 
The promise and hope of the resurrection changes in every way of our view of this age and our lives in it. The resurrection makes the reorganizing of our lives around Christ and his church not only possible and sensible, but even beautiful. The denial of self by giving up marriage and sex and children can become a clear picture of the age to come. This age will be characterized by the resurrection, which brings with it a deep form of community that depends completely on God and is well beyond our current imaginings. Celibacy can expand our theological imaginations of such a future. And so what she's essentially saying there is that in her mind, uh, singleness is actually a more accurate picture of the life to come. When we're in heaven, we won't be married. In heaven, you know, we don't have a family. Our family is in Christ and with each other, and it's defined more by our spiritual friendships and connections and our relationship to Christ than it is to our spouses and our children. You know, and so singleness and celibacy is actually a very clear representation of what that life will be like. And so we're living in that now. But again, on the other side, marriage also represents Christ's commitment to us. In, in heaven, we're married to Christ. So you can see that one is not better than the other, but they're both beautiful representations of Jesus's commitment to us and the church. And so Christine Hitchcock closes by saying, Christian celibacy gives us a living picture of a theological truth. One final quote I'd like to read from The Significance of Signalists is that our society, including the church, struggles to imagine a relationship that is intimate, fulfilling, and committed, yet is not the result of or striving towards a sexual union. It's the age-old question of when Harry met Sally, you know, can a man and a woman be friends? As Billy Crystal's character says, no, at some point sex is going to get in the way of that. And it's this desire we all have to find a mate, to find a companion, to find someone to know us and to be known and that we can know and know and love that all of these romantic comedies touch upon. And I think that's part of why we watch them. We want to live in a world where that's true. We want to live in a world where that's possible. We want to feel the hope of being loved, of loving someone, of finding that person. And I think that's okay. It is an okay desire to have that. It is fine to desire someone to be our partner, to be our wife, to be our husband. It is fine to long for that, to dream for that, to pray for that. But it is also fine to not have that, as long as in both of these cases, we're submitting ourselves, our wants, our desires, our needs, and our relationships and our commitments to relationships to the Lord. It's there that we'll find the one that truly loves our soul. And it's there that we will find this fulfillment, this joy, um, regardless of where we find ourselves relationally. And so I hope you will read these two books, The Significance of Singleness and The Meaning of Marriage, in whatever season you find yourself in, because they give you great insight into both singleness and marriage in the eyes of Christ. And the next time you sit down to watch a romantic comedy, just enjoy it. It's okay. And thank God for what the season that you are in and for the work he is doing in your life. And so with that, thank you for listening. I hope you will join me next time where we will have a guest joining us. More on that coming up next episode. <laughs>